So this week we'll talk about NLP teams and we have special a special guest today, Ivan. So we already have had Ivan a few weeks ago where he talked also about NLP, introduction to NLP. And one of the things he talked about was um, NLP teams and then who we have on the team, the roles. And uh, then later Ivan posted uh, a, a, these pictures of members of NLP teams uh, on LinkedIn and it got a lot of engagement, a lot of attention. So we thought it would be cool to spend some time talking more about this, how we can, uh, like in general, about leading NLP teams, who are on the teams and so on. So Ivan, is, uh, he works in, as engineering manager at Personio. And do I understand correctly that you do not manage an NLP team right now, right? No, not right now. <laughs> yeah, but you <laughs> I can used tell to you do more this. about that. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes. So, but what you do now, what you are currently working on, is identity as, and access management. This, this is what Personio is doing, right? Um, yeah. So, per, okay. Uh, Personio is a HR platform, right? So, oh, okay. Um, my team specifically is responsible for uh, basically everything related to login, login experience of the users, and then also access rights. Because as a sort of HR platform, you um, there's a lot of personal data we are handling, and uh, we have to make sure everything is as secure as possible, um, adhering to all the standards. And uh, what we are kind of we are in internal product team, so we are providing. Uh, tools for other teams at the company. So we we have like uh, our own tooling around um, access rights that other teams can use uh, that that can help them basically in their features and and their parts of the application to check whether a specific user or um, you know has, uh, has is supposed to have access to a, a document of some sort or supposed to see I don't know a salary of someone. So you know let's say a manager is supposed to see salaries of, of his subordinates, but not the other way around and mm-hmm. things like that. Yeah, that's uh, that must be quite a complex problem. Um, so the main technical and thanks for telling us uh, by the way. So the main technical interests. Uh, of Ivan include building microservices for data intensive applications, MLOps for NLP, and deep learning research. Just we will talk about some of these things today. So welcome to our event. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Um, <laughs> yeah, looking forward to answering the questions. Um, so before we go into our main topic of um, NLP teams, let's start with your background. Can you tell us about your career journey so far? Yeah, sure. Um, right. I. Uh, I've studied uh, actually initially. Uh, I come from Ukraine and I studied uh, their sort of general linguistics um, uh, for a while. When I moved to Munich um, about I think it's about ten years ago already, um, I decided to uh, to to pick up actually computational linguistics. So it was like a continuation of what I was doing before, and the computational linguistics um, as a field was relatively new back then as well. It was you know, sort of centered a lot around machine learning and how that can be applied to text understanding and text analysis in general. Uh, you know, back then it was still uh, done with Perl and uh, then eventually we moved into Python uh, as it's now sort of an industry, industry standard. Uh, and so I, um, over time I worked actually on different projects and in different teams, I did not, only work on NLP and AI. So I my like first jobs were in building uh, uh, interfaces for desktop apps. Um, so I worked a lot with, with C Sharp, C++. 
Eventually I worked uh, on um, web scraping for quite a while. Then I moved into data engineering. So I was working on uh, ETL pipelines with, with Spark and Hadoop. Uh, and then for a while I worked also as a data scientist. So that was uh, a company called TrustU where we were working on aspect-based sentiment analysis on text summarization and uh, a few other NLP tasks. And uh, there is where sort of the core of my NLP uh, knowledge also comes from because that was super challenging as we had to support uh, our solutions uh, for 23 different languages. So basically, um, and uh, some of those languages are super complex. So we, uh, I think we, um, the most complex languages I worked with would probably be Japanese and Thai. These are like Asian languages that are very, very different to like regular uh, English NLP that you would do. Uh, so yeah, that was quite interesting. Uh, eventually then I, I went into management. So I've, uh, I, I, I actually got another degree in technology management here in Munich at the CDTM. And uh, I've been managing teams for a bit over two years. So I managed data engineering teams, um, NLP teams, and now it's more sort of web product-based team at Persona. Interesting. Do you still use Perl? No, not really. <laughs> it's uh, yeah, it, it's a language that's hard to read, and it you know it also depends on who writes the code because the the formatting there is not very strict. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I remember uh, the day when I needed to figure out how a Perl program works uh -huh, because there uh -huh. was a scraper, web scraper written in Perl that the company okay. where I worked used and it saved uh, data, it dumped mm -hmm, data in a mm -hmm. specific format that was only possible to read from Perl. So I had oh. to hack a pro pro program that yeah. reads this and converts it to JSON and then just uh, it really messed up with my brain. So I'm not the same person as before <laughs> after yeah. doing that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I mean, Perl is actually a very powerful language, you know, and especially if you do, uh, you know, I know it's still used in, in cybersecurity to some extent. It's like really good for, uh, you know, salting passwords and, and stuff like that. But I, I actually, I haven't worked with it for, for quite a few years, so it has probably changed a lot. Uh, yeah. yeah. So you, you mentioned you also got a degree in technical management, right? Yeah, exactly. That was, was it uh, like masters? It is a, a sort of um, honors degree. It's like an additional program to masters that you can take here at. Uh, um, it's a CDTM, is Center for Digital Technology Management here in Munich. It's it's part of both LMU and TU. Um, so if you study, uh, you know, at LMU or TU, you can get an additional degree there. Uh, and that was that was very interesting because uh, it was very hands-on. So uh, it, it included like a couple of internships. I worked uh, at, a, like I had an internship at a company that was selling satellite images. So I actually worked on um, spectral analysis of satellite images, which was quite interesting. Then I also worked at a cybersecurity company called Maltego, uh, which is also quite fascinating. Uh, and yeah, it was, it was, it was very hands-on. You learn a lot uh, from it, how to manage projects and uh, yeah. And uh, you also get a really good sort of network built out of that. Most of uh, like a lot of startups and startup founders are founded actually by, by people who come out of CDTM here in Munich and in Berlin. 
Mm, that's cool. So you you studied product uh, project management there. What else did you study there? Like team management, like people yeah, management. Yeah, yeah, well? uh, organizational management. So yeah, yeah, all of those topics, right? So are these things that people can actually learn at university, or it's like uh, learning swimming by reading <laughs> uh, books about this? It's uh, as I said, like it was super hands-on, and that was uh -huh. cool because uh, all of the uh, presentations and sort of courses that we had were then led by um, you know, some, some CEOs or founders of, of different companies, and they would just bring their own perspective on you know how they approach organizational management or how they've built up uh, a startup that is now like worth a few billions. Uh, you know, so so that was very 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 fascinating to do. So there, I don't think I, I had to read any books while there. It was mostly really learning from experience of others. Yeah, I remember before I became a manager, I was reading books about this, books mm -hmm. or articles, and they did make much sense to me. Like uh, to me, it read like okay, do things well and uh, things will work out, something like this. Uh, but now, like when I already have this experience and I go back and read this, now it all of a sudden makes much more sense. Mm -hmm. So I guess mm -hmm. this is one of the things. Like, yeah, that's cool that things like that happen, and you, you can just go there. Did you need to take a break between works, works like your work there, or? Uh, no, I tried to <laughs> do everything at once. So I was working part time, uh, and then also studying post computation linguistics and technology management. Yeah, that's, that's really cool. So I'm I'm also really curious about your transitions, your career path. So you did quite a few different things. So mm -hmm. then you managed, mm -hmm. so you worked as a data scientist, and you managed uh, NLP teams, and now you manage a like a general usual like I would say air quotes, usual software engineering team. Um, I'm wondering what led to this uh, decision. Uh, mainly, you know, um, it's kind of driven by, by my uh, career goals, right? I, I want to uh, eventually uh, like work on a, on a higher level as a, as a manager, right? Either director level or, or CTO. And I think it's... Uh, you know, very important to have a very good grasp on different parts of software engineering, right? I already had a lot of experience with AI um, and now I sort of relearning things or like reminding myself how it is to manage uh, a team that works on a web application, you know, um, and I, I, there are still like many things that are still the same, right? I'm still doing more or less the same tasks, right? I'm, managing productivity of the team, um, um, talking a lot about CI, CD, which is important, not just for software engineering, but for AI as well, um, right? And uh, talking about um, uh, sort of, uh, yeah, availability of uh, the web apps that we are working now. And it's the same topic of availability of models, AI models, and how well, uh, you know, um, or how fast the users actually get the input from, from AI models or from web apps, basically more or less the same. Uh, and then our arching topic is observability and observability is important for any team, I think, not just AI and, or just software engineering. Like we used to, to have a lot of dashboards we looked at when we work on P models, we do the same now. We, use, we just look at different metrics, but we still have, you know, observability is a big part of what we are doing. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah, thanks for, for sharing. So coming back to our topic of uh, 
NLP teams. So how would you define an NLP team? And uh, like, is it even different from, because you just said that many mm -hmm. things that you're doing right now, even mm -hmm. though the team you manage is not uh, specifically an NLP team, it's not a data science team, it's not a data team at all. It's just software, a team of software engineers. Like how, how is it different from what you have and what is NLP team? Yeah, yeah, good question. I mean, uh, it's uh, it's more of like an industry question. Do we even have like separate designation for NLP teams? I think uh, maybe a few years ago, this wasn't the case. Like you would just have a data science team and like everything data science is done there, right? You either it's vision, NLP or just regular data analysis. I think now in recent years, we're like more and more branching off uh, because NLP has also became more and more popular uh, in the last few years. And so you now see at companies, uh, you know, having like a really dedicated NLP team that works on um, you know, NLP tasks. So um, I am a big proponent actually of like cross disciplinary teams. So I would prefer you know, to have a team that incorporates, uh, you know, data scientists, uh, NLP engineer, uh, ideally a data engineer, and maybe even infrastructure engineer. This is something I had a lot of success with is in my previous teams where we really had like a, um, all the talent gathered in one team and we had all the knowledge that we needed to, to succeed there. Um, so, right. But still, as I said, like some companies still do it. Like they have like completely separate NLP team that works on on delivering an NLP pipeline, right? Um, it's good when that team is like fully owns it. Like they also are responsible for um, deploying it to production and then monitoring and everything else. This is great, but it's all, not always the case. I know also of cases where. NLP teams just build a prototype in Jupyter Notebook and then just give it away to the data engineering team and they or like ML engineers and they put it on production. Um, so, you know, what differentiates NLP teams from other teams? I think it's mainly the, the like the core task is working with text data and then sort of delivering a system around it that that produces some insights for the user, right? So be it a classification or chatbot or some text generation, something like that. Okay, so an NLP team doesn't need to have an NLP engineer. As long as a team works on some NLP-related task, let's say chatbot mm -hmm. or a customer service bot, then it becomes an NLP team, right? Yeah, I mean, that's another question. Like, what is an NLP engineer? And is that... You know, I, I've been asking myself and the industry, is that an established role, right? Because it's still- I wanted to ask about that as well. Yeah, like it, it's still, I, I don't think it is still fully established, right? I still see, uh, you know, job ads that just say data analyst or data scientist, but the description is, you know, everything related to NLP. Um, and so I, I, I hope there is more sort of, um, the industry takes a step into defining these roles a bit more. And that's something I was trying to do with, with you know, I showed in the previous presentation and I, as you mentioned, I shared on LinkedIn, trying to sort of define those roles, what are their responsibilities and what are the skills that they need to have. And so for NLP teams uh, themselves, right, um, I think NLP engineer is very important. An NLP engineer is someone who has the experience and knowledge of working specifically with um, NLP tasks and like data science 
parts that specifically work with, with text. Um, and ideally, this is not always the case, but ideally someone who also you know, has some linguistic knowledge, right? At least some, some applied linguistics or at least basics of general linguistics, uh, because that, that's super useful to have. It's not a must these days, but it is you know, very useful. Um, now, thinking back to, to my career, uh, when uh, I worked as a you know, data scientist, you know, data scientist was my title, but I was sort of an NLP engineer. Um, and uh, looking back at the time, I think linguistics really helped. Like I was working on very hard problems of parsing text and like, especially in different languages and without knowing those like building blocks of how to do uh, proper dependency parsing, for example, or um, you know how to uh, do tokenization in languages that don't have uh, any full stops or spaces, like Thai, it's just a, a wall of text. Um, that really helped. Like I think without linguistic knowledge, uh, me and my team wouldn't be able to solve those issues so easily. Mm -hmm. So if let's say a data team that do not have the uh, NLP engineers, people mm -hmm. with who specialize in NLP tasks. So if this team doesn't have uh, such people, so how should they go about picking up the skills? <laughs> should it be yeah. a data scientist who goes and learns about uh, mm -hmm. uh, linguistics or how should they do that? Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a really hard question actually, uh, because the, the question itself is to be at the current stage, do we need those linguistics? now like there are so many things now that you could really get by without understanding linguistics <laughs> right there are you know just think about gpt3 uh, where anyone can do it right you don't even need to know how to do uh, data science itself right you just use the gpt3 prompt and then you have something built out of it um it depends on what tasks you work on right if you are working on like more regular NLP tasks that everyone else is working, like, I don't know, let's say just basic sentiment analysis or summarization or things like that. This, you know, most of the time you probably can get by without any linguistic knowledge. But if you're going more into um, specific tasks, like, you know, you would say relation extraction or information extraction. And especially if you're starting to work with languages that are not not so like widely covered by you know, research these days then it really helps to 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 have linguistic knowledge and how do you get that is uh, a good question so um, there are quite a few resources online of course you can learn that uh, by yourself i wouldn't recommend to to like go and learn general linguistics um, that is probably not not going to be super helpful there are courses and resources that are more specific to NLP itself. And I think there are quite a few things, for example, uh, around Spacey, I think they have a lot of tutorials around that, Hugging Face, uh, and you can just really go and specifically learn NLP related linguistic knowledge. Right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so you focus more on NLP and computational linguistics rather than, you know, generic and linguistics. Raw linguistics, yeah. Exactly. Okay. And then um, I guess what you also mentioned is you pick up a library like Sp Spacey or Hugging Face and you mm -hmm. learn that. And then along with uh, learning this library, you also pick up some necessary NLP knowledge, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a, right. What I'm saying can be also like 
heresy to some people, <laughs> right? I know there's like a, a, you know, there are two camps of uh, NLP researchers. One, one camp says we can do everything with AI and we don't need linguistics. And then there's another camp that specifically advocates for us first learning linguistics properly and then applying it to AI, right? And so it, it's like, it really depends on what you're doing. If you're in, if you're doing research actually at universities, I think knowing linguistics will definitely benefit you because that's probably one of the avenues that will help um, improve current AI, right? If someone who knows both linguistics very well and AI very well, they're going to build a better language model than someone who only knows AI, for example. Yeah, it's also um, like maybe if you compare in computer vision, you have like old school computer vision, mm -hmm, which mm -hmm. is about extracting features with yeah. all this, um, you know, I like I think it's called back of visual words and all this mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. like uh, Swift. And I, I don't remember, I don't yeah, know much yeah. about these things, but I like uh, I know that this thing exists, like old school of computer vision. And then there is a new school is just, we don't care about this, just throw everything in the neural network, it will figure this out and work. And interestingly, it does work, right? Yeah, it does work. I, yeah, I, you know, that's another can of worms that I, I don't think we want to open. What is more complicated vision or text analysis, right? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, maybe it works because vision is a bit more definitive in some <laughs> way than text, because text, you know, text is a, no, there's a, there are endless amount of, of sentences you can generate in English, and that's only in English, right? You have so many languages there, are, you know, mm -hmm. whatever, 5,000 languages we have or something like that. It's, uh, yeah, I don't want to open this can of worm. I, I'm not saying that text is easier than vision. Vision is very hard as well. Uh, but I think for in order for us to succeed with, with text analysis, I think we still need uh, uh, linguistics for sure. Okay, so what do you say that a data scientist, an NLP engineer is somebody who has data science background, um, like who is a data scientist with uh, some knowledge of NLP and computational linguistics? Would it be correct description? Yeah, yeah, I would say so. Mm -hmm. yeah. So that was basically, so you said you, you were hired as a data scientist, but your task was working on NLP things. Yeah, mostly. Mm -hmm. And what's the difference then between... Um, uh, NLP engineer and machine learning engineer. So is NLP engineer an engineer in the same sense as you know, machine mm -hmm. learning engineer? Mm -hmm. Like, do they care more about the engineering aspect or more yeah. like training models aspect? Uh, that's a very good question. I hope in the future they will be more or less the same because I think both parts are important. Mm -hmm. How I've seen it so far, NLP engineers are um, like at least in, in the case of the team I worked at, uh, we were doing a lot of engineering. Like it was really a lot of pure engineering where we are optimizing everything um, and not just um, optimizing training, but also optimizing inference. What we were doing less of was the like productionizing of the model itself, like the deployment itself. And that was mostly done with the help of ML engineer or data engineer. In that case, and I think this is kind of, um, you know, I also um, had a lot of interviews uh, when when hiring NLP engineers, data engineers, ML engineers. And this is sort of a division I see where ML, ML engineers themselves think of of themselves as, as DevOps for AI, right? They are responsible for, um, you know, deploying the models, 
figuring out how to do um, I don't know blue green deployment of AI model right because that's a, that's a challenge that I think um, NLP engineers not always prepared to solve. Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting. And um, so we talked about linguistics and that uh, somebody who is an NLP engineer they need to know these linguistics. Uh, but do we need people who are who specialize only in linguistics who have this not mm -hmm. uh, just NLP knowledge and know how to um, call uh, methods from spicy but yeah. who actually yeah. had education as linguists mm -hmm. do we need people like that in the team yeah for sure uh, there are some specific tasks that would really benefit from that and I think um, in the I think about the last two years there was like a new role forming in the world of data science and it's called conversational designer and it's basically a person who is responsible for making the the user experience and the flow of how the chatbot interacts with the user feel sort of more realistic right uh, and conversational designers from what i see uh, mostly people who come from like more pure either linguistic background or some like uh, more societal studies uh, uh, because that knowledge is, is really important then to how do you properly form uh, an utterance that, that the chatbot can use or how does a chatbot react to some specific questions, things like that. And that's what conversational designers these days work. And they usually, um, from, from, from what I've seen, uh, right, I, I have a, like a, a small uh, uh, subset of, of people I know who are actually conversational designers, but from, from those I know, they mostly work on, on, um, on defining that flow without having to code that much, right? They are less of a coder, less of an NLP engineer. They like really specifically look into how you, you can build out a really nice uh, experience around talking to a chatbot. So I guess it's similar to what we have in general software engineering, like product designers and UX yeah. designers. Yeah. Only here they, they don't focus on general UX uh, user experience. They focus on um, the conversational part, yeah. like the interaction with chatbot. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's a really good uh, comparison. Yeah. Okay, interesting. And uh, what about areas when, let's say, some teams, not all NLP teams work mm -hmm. on chatbots. There are teams who work on other things, uh, like you mentioned, like this information extraction mm -hmm. and uh, I don't remember what else. But uh, there are yeah. areas where, like, maybe we need to um, do something with text, understand mm -hmm. it or whatever. Um, do we need uh, linguists there in those teams as well? Good question. Uh, it really depends on on like what area of research you're working in, or like what the specific tasks you work on. Um, I think it wouldn't hurt, right? If you have someone who knows linguistics well, um, and if you have problems, as I mentioned before, like problems where you really need to think about how do you parse a sentence, or how do you, uh, you know, um, get something out of of of, a, of text. Um, yeah, that, that's where a linguist would really help. Uh, ideally, right, I think I, ideally is uh, to have this NLP engineer role that has both incorporated, right? It's someone who knows linguistics enough to, uh, to be, be able to apply it, but on the other side also knows the engineering part behind it um, to, to effectively apply it to, to the problem they're working on. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and uh, as you mentioned, when a team starts working on an NLP task, they don't necessarily need to immediately get this NLP, uh, this linguistics knowledge, because you can get quite far just by using this library. Uh, so let's say a yeah, team starts working on the, some NLP tasks. So they do get by, they just go get hugging face, spacey, start using this. And then at which point do they need to hire a linguist or NLP engineer? So how do you decide that? How do you see that, that uh, they need somebody? Huh. That's a good question. It also, I guess, depends on um, on what approach they choose, right? If they, if the problem that you have can be solved by pure AI, then I think there probably is no need for specific like linguistic knowledge in the team. Um, but not all problems can be solved with AI, and that's why um, you know. Still in the industry, a lot of problems are solved with still like rule-based systems uh, or like uh, at least some statistical approaches. Um, and that's, or especially if you need to build, still build like uh, features uh, to do feature engineering. I think there it would be very helpful to have a linguist or like at least an LP engineer who knows uh, what to look for, how to build features and, and so on. Um, yeah, so it really depends on the problem, right? We are sort of moving into a direction where more and more problems can be solved with just, you know, throwing a neural network at a problem. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it's a question of where we are going to go in the next few years, right? There's, I think GPT-3 showed one thing is that you can just throw raw power and a bit of data into a neural network and then you have something amazing working but the question is where does it end right how far can we go how many more uh, learning parameters we can fit into the language model um yeah yeah that's funny that you mentioned that uh, we have a question uh what is the future of nlp um like, do you think that if we have libraries like hugging face or spacey uh, or spacey like because they simplify it a lot, right? So they just take it and arrive. Like the, the API of these uh, uh, libraries is quite good. So you can just take and use it. Um, do you think having access to libraries like this will remove uh, uh, the need or to write NLP pipelines from scratch or not? Yeah, I think, I mean, yes, for, for many tasks, as I said, like, you you can get by with those things and uh, um, i mean what those uh, like tools that you mentioned what they are doing is they are democratizing yeah right? they are there they are open sourcing everything and this is great this is enabling like smaller teams or smaller startups to work more easily on ai um and whether that will like fully remove the need of writing nlp pipelines I don't think it will. It's actually very funny. I had a very similar conversation uh, five years ago. And back then, everyone was talking about AutoML, right? AutoML is going to replace data scientists. AutoML, uh, we're not going to need to build NLP models. And that is still not the case, right? Five years have passed. We're still building uh, NLP pipelines. Um, so I think this will probably stay uh, the same. We will still have to build NLP pipelines uh, because the complexity will just grow and grow. And as complexity grows, you probably won't be able to catch up with 
having high level tools that uh, sort of always incorporate the latest thing, right? You will still need to use NLP pipelines or build NLP pipelines mm -hmm. to be able to have like a, a advantage or an edge, um, right? Papers come out, you know, NLP papers, AI papers come out every week um, and right, new things um, will come out very fast and the faster you react to them, the better, right? So having an NLP engineering team that can easily take some, some new paper and then incorporate ideas, like not, not the whole thing, but at least some ideas into their current solution will be super helpful. And that's probably not always possible with these open source tools. But I guess also, like in Spacey, there is a method uh, that just, uh, you know, just make things good and then it just works. But internally somewhere, it uh, still has an NLP pipeline, right? Yeah, right. And right. then potentially you can go deeper and then try to uncover that and also adjust it to whatever you need. And by the way, speaking of NLP pipelines, I don't think we mentioned what an NLP pipeline is. So maybe can you tell us what, what it actually is and why uh, Hugging Face and Spacey remove the need of doing that? Yeah, good question. So, uh, I mean, it, def it depends on how you define it. My definition would be, you know, if you are an NLP team building an NLP pipeline, that already starts with data, right? That starts with data annotation, that starts with generated good quality data and then refining it. And the next step is depending, you know, if you use AI, you build up uh, basically, let's say you take something like T5 or some other language model, um, and then you have to make it work for your specific task, right? So you do some task engineering basically around it and you make it work with your specific data input. And then you also have to define what's the outcome of that. And then, you know, depending on how much you want to play around with, with the language model itself, you can also in between work on neural network improvements for your specific task. Then when you have that, the last bit is uh, basically, okay, there's also testing, right? Uh, testing for NLP models is very important. After that comes uh, productionizing. So how do you deliver uh, some kind of, I don't know, a binary model that can be used for inference? Um, how do you deploy it? And then in the end, how, how do you uh, do observability around it? So for me, that is the NLP pipeline that starts with data and uh, ends with how do you observe how your model performs on production? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Okay. And uh, so what you described, so the data annotation, data quality, then task engineering, then testing the model, then productionizing model. So Spacey and uh, Hugging Face don't seem to remove the need for that. You still have to do yeah. all these tasks. It's <laughs> not like you just press a button and all of a sudden have a high quality annotated data, right? You still need Yeah, to... what they remove is this task engineering for the most yeah. part, right? You don't have to, you know, uh, tinker around with the behind the scenes implementation of a specific language model. You just use it from there. Mm -hmm. What I had in mind when I heard NLP pipeline is um, I remember using this uh, core, the Stanford core NLP mm -hmm. library. It's in Java. Uh, it's a pretty old library. And then there is a, a class called 
pipeline or NLP pipeline, I don't remember. And this pipeline, so it's first, uh, it's about uh, splitting the, the sentences. So you, let's say you have yeah. a paragraph and then in paragraph you have different sentences. So you want to split it uh, to have separate sentences. Then uh, you then tokenize, like you mm -hmm. yeah. take the sentence and break it into multiple tokens. Then perhaps you want to do i don't know remove punctuation or not remove punctuation right, right. and then you also want to do some limitization stemming all these things uh, uh so this is what i thought uh, when i heard nlp pipeline that is that is what's referred to as pre-processing right uh -huh. that's uh yeah i guess I, I just forgot to mention that so like you have the data and then how do you um, make the language model or like whatever you're using role-based system understand the data that's where, where the step of pre-processing comes in, right? This tokenization, limitization. It really depends on, you don't always need all of those steps. And for, uh, you know, for current language models, you don't need almost any of those steps anymore. Um, and it, like, it really depends on the task, right? And you're right, like these problems are mostly solved and they are mostly solved in, in tools like Spacey and, and Hugging Face where you don't really have to think anymore how do I tokenize uh, a sentence? It's done like almost fully automatically there. And what about uh, these tools like GPT-3 that uh, like, uh, I guess they also remove some of the steps uh, from this pipeline as well. They make it easier, right? Yeah, like GPT-3 is like a whole, on a whole different level. <laughs> mm -hmm. You don't need to do anything really. The the uh, idea of GPT-3 is that it, it, it it's like a, it's a big, it's a smart lookup table, right? It has seen, uh, I think, like 10% of the whole internet, right? That's what the data set that was used to train it. And it has seen so much data that it has also seen, uh, you know, what it, it kind of, you could say, it knows what NLP is, right? It, it knows how to solve some tasks. It knows what tokenization is. It just somehow has learned it. And it's like internal in that black box. We don't know how that actually works. So all you need to do for GPT-3 is just write a prompt. Like you give it one example, for example, you write, um, if you want to do sentiment analysis, you just write uh, a day is nice. And then you write tag positive. And then you write another sentence and say, I'm sad. And then uh, you write tag, but you don't, don't write whether it's positive or negative. But then the model will just auto complete it for you. It mm -hmm. just knows somehow that you are asking it to do sentiment analysis, which is, which is insane. And there's even like, even super ridiculous things as GPT-3 where there was a paper recently where they uh, were exploring how well does GPT-3 does translations. And basically they, uh, like in the original, I think GPT-3 paper, they just uh, had a prompt like, please translate this sentence from English to French and then give the sentence. And then what, what, the, what the researchers did, they, they, said, they changed the prompt to, please translate this English sentence as if you are a very uh, good French translator. <laughs> and then it gives you a much better quality of translation, which is, you know, blows your mind that this is possible these days. Yeah, I think you showed uh, in your presentation that it's possible to translate a usual sentence into like, uh, rewrite it as if it was yeah. written by a lawyer. Yeah. Right. 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 That, that's also insane. So it's like translating from usual uh, English to uh, legal yeah, to English. Some... Right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is uh, the you know, 
it's a miracle of, of this like these three like massive language models that they somehow have internalized all of those things without you know we didn't have to teach them what is tokenization or what is even what is translation they just somehow learned it mm -hmm. um and that's you know the question now is you know how far can we get with this right <laughs> can we just get away with throwing more compute power bigger gpus and, and more data and expect it to work better and better and when uh, does it become creepy yeah <laughs> feel it is already kind of like i have goosebumps sometimes when i watch some of these demos like they basically like as you said it's a big lookup table and probably it already knows everything what is there on the internet about you about me about everyone who is watching that right if you ever left a footprint somewhere on the internet it saw it and it knows that yeah, most probably. <laughs> it depends. Like I, I remember, like it was uh, seen a demo that it's mm -hmm. possible to get like emails of people. Just yeah, by... right. This was even possible with like GPT two back then. Mm -hmm. Like you could just start writing an address, and then it would autocomplete it with with an actual name of someone who lives at that address, which is it's crazy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah that's creepy. But I guess like if you use GPT three, then you still have this component of task engineering. Just it, it's on the way it's now it's a yeah. very simplified now right uh -huh. it's like you don't need to do that much right you just need to figure out what is the best way to tell the model to do your task and mm -hmm. and how much data you actually have to give it mm -hmm. and you even you know you could even get by with like just a few examples for some tasks for more complicated tasks i can imagine you can still need like a very well annotated data set uh, but it's not cheap, right? It's expensive. You cannot just, uh, you know, just use it and rely on this completely on GPT-3. Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't know, like they are trying to open source it now or something. I don't know. But I think you still have to pay like for, for tokens to be mm -hmm. able to use it. Like for each request, you, yeah, you need to pay. Each request. Yeah, so the, it is definitely expensive, but it's, you know, um, it's not just a problem with that you have to pay for it, but it's a problem that you have zero control of what it's doing and why it's doing it. Like if there's, let's say if someone uh, finds uh, a way to bias GPT-3 very easily, then they can easily reproduce that on your solution that you built based on GPT-3. Mm -hmm. So you, you have like zero control of that. Right? Mm -hmm. And that's why, you know, that's why not not everyone jumps on, on this. Like not everyone is using GPT-3. I think it, it's, super good to build an mvp of some sort right mm -hmm. you can very quickly you know uh, use gpt3 to build out um, some kind of demo uh, and then sort of validate it and then i've seen a lot of uh, companies do that basically after they validated their demo with something easy like gpt whatever gpt2 even um, they just say okay now we build something that we are in control of we build our own LP pipeline and we know how it works. We have control over it to some extent. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I guess you can use it for annotating your data as well, right? So for collecting your initial version of the, uh, the data set. Yeah, I guess. I, I actually haven't seen anyone using GPT-3 for data annotation. I don't know how well that actually works. That's a good yeah, well, I think we have a pilot project on that. I think it worked well. Yeah. Uh, I nice, wasn't involved nice. in that project. I just heard yeah. that uh, we tried this and it worked uh, well. And mm -hmm. then we basically trained a simpler model on the output of uh, GPT-3. Uh, yeah. So something like, uh, I don't know, logistic regression or something like that. So something super simple. It was uh, a classification pro problem. Nice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I didn't even think about that. 
<laughs> so because like writing all these rules for extracting data for information extraction so uh, like olx is a place where mm -hmm. people can exchange like it's basically online marketplace so you have mm -hmm. listings and listings have descriptions and you want to extract some information from there and uh, you mentioned that information extraction is a complex task mm. right and we tried to use gpt3 i think for making this uh, for extracting mm -hmm. this and mm -hmm. then using these things as labels and then fitting simpler model on top of that yeah but i yeah. only saw demos so i wasn't taking part of that but that's mm -hmm. a cool mm -hmm. oh, interesting yeah. but i think we talked about this already and we kind of mentioned that so the question we have is now we have this gpt3 does it mean that we no longer need things like hugging face, uh, spacey, and so on? Or we still need to... So would you still use hugging face if you had access to GPT-3 now? Uh, yeah, I I would say yes, because GPT-3 still is not able to solve everything. It is kind of able to solve <clears throat> most of the tasks to a good extent. But the question is, can it actually solve everything you need to be able to, for it to be used on production, right? For it to be actually given to the clients. And I have to think that's the case right now. Um, and, you know, and even if you do that, there is, uh, you know, a lot of danger that, you know, it will just go rogue on you and you have no idea how to control mm -hmm. it, right? It just becomes biased uh, to some specific user group or something like that. Yeah, I'm wondering what would, then would happen like let's say if uh, mm -hmm. OpenAI finds out that uh, it's broken because uh, somebody mm -hmm. you know messed up with this and <clears> they decide okay now it's bad let's shut it down and then everyone who relies on this uh, yeah they can see sorry <laughs> yeah uh, that's why uh, you know that's, there's a group uh, like a open source engineering group uh, called uh, let's see, Euler AI, Olof AI. Um, basically, they are working on rebuilding GPT-3 from scratch. And so we have now things like GPT-J and GPT-Neo. It's like smaller version of GPT-3, but they are fully open source and anyone can use them. And you also can look up sort of how they build it. Right? So, so that's a good, that's a step in the right direction. And that's, um, you know, I think this will always be the case, even if, OpenAI comes out with GPT-4 and it's again proprietary, there will again be someone who will be able eventually to crack the code and sort of open source it for everyone. Yeah, interesting. And so another question we have is, uh, do, what do you think NLP is more? Is it more about like writing better pipelines and uh, improving these pipelines and then implementing some research papers or it's mm -hmm. more like theoretical linguistic knowledge and applying it. I think you, you at the beginning, you mentioned that, that uh, you know, you can get uh, quite far mm -hmm. without uh, much linguistics knowledge. Mm -hmm. So what do you think NLP actually is? Is it about applying these libraries or is it, by, uh, is it about, about using linguistics uh, knowledge yeah. and applying it? That's a good question. I think uh, it depends if you're talking about industry or ac uh, academia, right? So if we're talking about industry, and like, let's say smaller companies or smaller startups, uh, it, you know, it, for them, there's no sort of financial in incentive to uh, innovate in terms of linguistic application of NLP, right? They are more interested in building this NLP pipelines and building a product out of them. And that's 
where tools like Hugging Patients basically come in that help them a lot. Where we are talking maybe a bigger companies like let's say Google. I know Google has, you know, at Google Brain, for example, there are people who are working on that. They're working on sort of linguistics application to NLP. And a lot of academia also works on that, right? Because, um, you know, they will not, you know, we will probably from academic perspective, we will not advance NLP if we only work on you know, building bigger uh, um, sort of AI models. We really need to, to see how else we can incorporate it linguistic knowledge into AI research. And that's where academia is actually doing a lot of that. There are a lot of universities who are working on that specific part. Mm -hmm. So basically you're saying the future of NLP is not just throwing more hardware yeah. at uh, GPT-3, whatever, GPT-4, or I don't know if it's something, if it's a thing, but more like, uh, okay, now we learned how to throw hardware at uh, all the internet and then make it learn it how can we now simplify it right so how can we now uh, achieve similar thing but mm -hmm. without uh, having to burn uh, like a lot of uh, yeah. gpus yeah. yeah yeah i mean there's probably i mean you could say there's like a race going on now right <laughs> organizations like OpenAI are trying to push the limits of just you know building bigger and bigger language models where you know some universities are um, trying to to rely more on linguistics right and it it we i i don't know what will come out of that right who will win and if there will be a winner or always will, will be like that you know ideally uh, i've uh, there's a lnlp research institute and i i know they um are exploring a lot of this how do you merge linguistics with ai to build better ai model and better language models and this is I think this is like right direction to go into because you know, this will definitely help advance the field. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they uh, this Allen AI they do quite a lot of work in NLP, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. They. They. Yeah. Right. So the institute is called Allen AI, I think, and they have also like a open source toolkit called Allen NLP. Right? Yeah, because I remember um, seeing competitions on Kaggle from them. Mm -hmm. It was mm -hmm. about. Uh, like that was actually my first Kaggle competition I ever mm. took part in. It was about, uh, so you have uh, in uh, school, you have these multiple choice questions. So you have yeah. a question and then you have four answers. Mm. And uh, the task that they had is built a model that would select the right answer. So you have mm -hmm. a model, uh, you have a question, you have four answers. And the task was uh, to rank them basically, mm -hmm. to give the mm -hmm. correct answer. And then, yeah, it was... It was an unusual, not a usual uh, machine yeah. learning problem, let's say. So it was uh, a lot about indexing uh, Wikipedia uh -huh. and uh -huh. then using this knowledge base to rank all these answers. So yeah, yeah that was yeah. quite a fun one. Yeah, I mean, you know, um, AI and NLP also incorporates many other things, like mm -hmm. you know, uh, you know, net, like graph. How do you build a knowledge graph and things like that? That's also all part of NLP and AI. Mm -hmm. So I'm. So that competition was, um, I don't know, six years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, do you think now with all these GPT three um, things, uh, is it a solved problem now? Can we just, uh, you know, answer multiple choice questions, or it's still not a solved problem? Yeah, I, I don't think so. I don't think there is a 
any problem we have fully solved right mm -hmm. you know some you know there there are papers that state some ai models are as good as humans or better as humans but this is all evaluated on a very small subset of some kind of data right it's really hard to say whether it's actually true or not so mm -hmm. it's i wouldn't say we solved all of those problems mm -hmm. yeah and even if we did we probably would have solved it only for english but there mm -hmm. are so many yeah, other languages right. we need to solve it right. for yeah, what do you think about language translation? So, because there is a mm -hmm. question uh, that it seems to be one of the toughest NLP tasks. So, do you think we will be able to achieve human level results there in NLP in language translation? Yeah, good question. Um, yeah, you know, language translation itself. I I, I knew uh, someone who worked at uh, DARPA in the US. And basically, language translation mostly come or came to us from solving these problems for you know, military purposes. And this is where it mostly started, I think. Now you actually have like more um, you know, uh, product-based solution, right? So you have you know, Google Translate, of course, you also have uh, DeepL or DeepL, uh, which is trying to solve this problem. And uh, I think the path to solve it is to try to make it an actual product that can make you money and that will get you more funds to uh, put it back into research and then improve it even more and more. This is, uh, I think this is the way we are going right now, right? Google is investing a lot into translation. There are other companies investing a lot in that. But then we will be able to solve it fully. I don't know, it's hard to say, right? I, there are more and more like products coming out of that, um, but, Right now, I think if you look at that uh, translation task, we are kind of good for maybe like eight to 10 languages and that's it. Like it's mostly European languages, maybe Chinese and, you know, of course, mm -hmm. English. It's kind of okay, it can be used, but, you know, if you go beyond that, we're far, far away from being able to solve that issue. And that mainly comes from the fact that we don't have enough data for it, right? There's mm -hmm. it's not enough textual data to train AI on. Yeah. But uh, also, I'm quite impressed now with the results I get from Google Translate as a user. Because yeah. yeah. uh, like I live in Germany, in Germany people use German, my German is not that good. Mm -hmm. So what I usually do is I uh, write something in Google Translate, usually I use English because uh, translating from English to German mm -hmm. works much better than translating from Russian to German, yeah. even though now, last year, it really works. It works really well also mm -hmm. from Russian to German, uh, even though I think English and German are a lot closer mm -hmm. uh, to each other than Russian and German. It works really well. And uh, eight years ago, when I lived in Poland, I needed to translate uh, from Polish to Russian. And these are very similar languages, right? Yeah. They are very close. But I think what happened internally is they translated first from Polish to English yeah. and then from yeah. English to Russian. And then a lot of things uh, would be lost in translation here, mm -hmm. right? But now if I need to translate something from Polish to Russian, it's very good. And uh, translation from Ukrainian to Russian works like as if a person translated. Translates. Oh, really? Okay. It's, it works really well. So like I sometimes read websites uh, mm -hmm. uh, in Ukrainian. So there is mm -hmm. uh, a lot of content in Russian and mm -hmm. some articles mm -hmm. in Ukrainian. And then I would understand Ukrainian, but sometimes mm -hmm. it's just simpler to translate. Mm -hmm. And it works really well, like as if it was written in Russian. So that's uh, that's really impressive. Yeah. So Yeah, I, I think Google Translate actually switched to 
using these like language models that they trained. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know how many years ago, but it is like four or five years ago. And that's where the quality was like really visibly much better, right? And, uh, you know, Google can do it because they have so much data, right? They mm -hmm. index the whole internet and mm -hmm. it's easier for them to train just a language model for it. And uh, I think for translations now, like the top solutions are all pure AI. I don't think there's mm -hmm. much linguistics in that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I guess if I try to translate from Russian to, uh, I know some Indian language, like uh, then uh, maybe it's not a very common, uh, yeah, yeah, that translation pair. Okay, I wanted to ask you about. Uh, so I just noticed that we don't have a lot of time left, and okay. there was something I really wanted to ask you. So I wanted okay. to ask you about your project. So you yeah. have a project on your GitHub called NLP Pandek. Right. Did they pronounce it correctly? NLP yeah. Pandect? Yeah. Uh, I guess, yeah. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce it because it's also old Greek. Uh, I, I think it's Pandect. Or, yeah. Pandect okay. yeah. Can you tell us more about this project? What is yeah, it? sure, sure. This is uh, something I started last year, like during lockdown, <laughs> because I was bored. <laughs> and so uh, the idea was, uh, right, we all know there are like these awesome lists, right? This is like a very typical... Thing on, on GitHub where people create like a list of things and nice links. So um, I wanted to do something like that for, for NLP. There were already some like awesome lists for NLP, but I just saw they are like a bit bland. There's just a list of URLs. So I, I tried to, um, to make it more like user-friendly. So I came up with this idea to, to have like a different name for it, right? Pandect means encyclopedia in old, on old Greek. And um, I also created some like visuals around it. So if you go to the NLP Pandic on GitHub, all the sections are done uh, with, with nice fonts and there are old Greek uh, sort of symbols of gods and, and things like that. Uh, so kind of giving it a, a, a theme. And then uh, what I did with that is also try to really uh, like fine grained classification of, of things to put there, right? For if you go to the NLP Pandic, you can just easily search for a specific NLP task, and then you have a list of, uh, of I don't know, tutorials. You have a separate list of books you can read on that, or a separate list of GitHub repositories you, you can look at. And then in that, I also did like uh, an analysis of all NLP tools, of all ML tools. So all of that you can find there. And it doesn't end with NLP Pandect. So as I work also with many other things, I have two more projects related to this. So there's a microservices Pandact. So there's a lot of information there about how to build and maintain microservices, how to do DevOps around them. And there's a one I started more recently is for engineering managers. So there's engineering manager uh, Pandact, which is incorporates a lot of resources for leadership. How do you lead technical teams? How do you, you know, solve people issues and, and things like that? Okay, thanks. I just realized there was so much I wanted to ask you. I think mm. we covered only like half of that, but <laughs> we talked about other things. So yeah. Yeah. yeah, that was that was fun. Thanks a lot for joining us today. Thanks a lot for sharing all everything with us. Yeah, thank you for yeah. inviting me. By the way, so if somebody wants to reach out to you, how can mm. they do that? Yeah, so the best way is to find me on LinkedIn. That's where I mostly active. Um, yeah, I'm also on Twitter. Uh, but I don't post uh, that much. So LinkedIn is probably the best way. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Thanks for joining us today. And thanks Great. everyone for asking questions. Uh, 
Yeah, so have a great rest of your day. Great, thanks a lot.